Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. Today, we're talking about the Delta variant of the coronavirus, which is causing surges in COVID cases and hospitalizations around the U.S. Our guest will tell us what makes Delta so much more contagious and what everyone should know about how to avoid infection. First, though, have you subscribed to Health Now yet? Do it today to make sure you don't miss any of our coverage of the COVID pandemic and all of our other fascinating conversations about health and wellness. Find us on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you. Okay, let's get started. It seems clear that we're entering a new phase of the COVID-19 pandemic, fueled mainly by a form of the SARS-CoV-2 virus called the Delta variant. COVID cases have been surging over the last few weeks, especially in areas where a lot of people remain unvaccinated. And the CDC has revised its guidance around wearing masks, saying that even people who've been fully vaccinated should start wearing them in some indoor settings. An internal CDC report that surfaced last week said that the Delta variant is as contagious as chickenpox. Today, we have Dr. William Schaffner, Professor of Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, here to help us make sense of what this new variant means for our daily life. Dr. Schaffner, welcome back to Health Now. Oh, good to be with you, Carrie. So what is it exactly that makes this Delta variant different from the versions of the virus we've been living with for the last year and a half? It seems like it's more contagious, obviously, but what else is different about it? Well, you put your finger on the main thing, and it is so different, so much more contagious that we really do have to think of it almost as a different virus. And that's why people are saying the war, if you will, has taken a new turn. Uh, This is a virus uh, where its mutations have made it such that it can enter our cells, our mucosal cells on the back of our throat much more readily, and it replicates, it multiplies so much more rapidly and extensively that when we exhale, our viral load, if you will, is much, much larger. And that means that it contributes to its contagiousness because if we're exhaling, if we're shedding much more virus, obviously people close to us are more likely to get an infectious load. And also it is speculated at least that air currents can waft our greater viral shedding to greater distances and perhaps also contribute to some so-called airborne transmission. So it's extraordinarily contagious. The other thing is we've just gotten some data from three studies in Europe and in Israel to suggest that the virus, once it affects you, is more likely to make you seriously ill. So it's not only faster, it hits you with a harder punch. So that's really fueled this rather striking and rapid expansion of this virus, such that now it accounts for over 90% of all new infections that are occurring across the country. Wow, that's pretty striking. Is it more deadly than the variants of the virus that we've been dealing with up to now? Well, as I said, these new studies would indicate that it's more apt to make you seriously ill. 
another feature is that since most people, most people who are older are have, have now been vaccinated, the unvaccinated population is younger. And so this virus is zooming in, honing in on this unvaccinated younger population. And so of the patients who we see hospitalized, first of all, over 95% of them are unvaccinated. Mm. And the second characteristic is that they're younger. They're now people in their 30s, 20s, down into their teens. And increasingly, this virus is getting into the pediatric population also. That's a very scary thought, especially for someone like me with young kids who can't be vaccinated yet. Mm. So I do want to talk about vaccines for a moment because vaccines have been highly effective against the coronavirus so far. But we've seen a lot of headlines lately about fully vaccinated people getting infected because of this Delta variant, or it it seems that way, that term that you hear called breakthrough cases. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear some context about how common these kinds of breakthrough cases are, how severe they are, and also the role that vaccines play in fighting the Delta variant. Yeah, so Carrie, the first thing is that most of this information we're going to be talking about right now is really quite reassuring. The vaccines continue to protect us from serious disease. After all, that was their intention. That's what they were designed to do. You know, as I said, over 95% of the people currently being admitted to the hospital are unvaccinated. It's really quite unusual for a vaccinated person to be admitted to the hospital. The vaccines were never 100% effective in doing that. They were 95% at best. And so we would expect some people, even though they're vaccinated, to wind up in the hospital. And of course, there are the immunocompromised individuals, persons who cannot respond optimally to the vaccine. And so we would anticipate that now and then we would see an immunocompromised person, although vaccinated, nonetheless, come down with an illness severe enough to hospitalize them. But all of them are in the distinct minority. The breakthrough cases that we've heard about are people who are vaccinated but have very mild infection, asymptomatic, ill enough to resemble a bad cold, and sometimes just a tad worse. Some of these people have to take to their bed for a day or two but they're not sick enough to be hospitalized. And even that, given the over 160 million people who have now been vaccinated, the proportion of individuals who even suffer these milder breakthrough infections is really rather small. Now, one more point, and we were faked out about this. I was surprised by this. The CDC has a small study which would indicate that if you've been vaccinated and you have a breakthrough infection, you actually shed as much virus as an unvaccinated person. Hmm. Ooh, that surprised us. We thought that you would be shedding less It's a small study, but it's the only one so far like this. And that would indicate that vaccinated people who do get a breakthrough infection can spread the virus. And that 
is the major contributor to the CDC's saying, whether you're vaccinated or not, if you go indoors to a large group activity, we should all wear our masks. You anticipated my next question precisely because I think a lot of people were probably pretty dismayed to hear that advice from the CDC. But that's interesting. That's kind of a curveball that they had not anticipated that um, this variant would be able to be just that contagious for a vaccinated person. Well, undoubtedly. Think back just a couple of months. At the beginning of the summer, cases were going down. As a consequence, hospitalizations were going down. We were doing very well. Then along came Delta, this extraordinarily contagious virus. And within a few months, it went from the appearance in the United States to now accounting for over 90% of all new infections. You know, if you're fighting a wildfire and it moves in a new direction, you can't keep doing the same thing. You've got to follow the fire in order to curtail its spread. And that's what we're having to do. And that's why the CDC did that. It's following the virus. You know, people don't like to acknowledge this, but the virus is in charge here. (laughs) We're still catching up and trying to cope with it. We thought we were getting ahead, and we were of the parent original strain. But then along came Delta, evading some of what we were doing simply because it was so contagious. And so we're having to readjust our public policy. Mm, Who likes it? But it's something we have to do. Just the facts uh, that we have to face at at this moment. So if you are fully vaccinated, which is, we should say, one dose of the one-shot vaccine, which is mainly Johnson & Johnson, or two doses of the two-shot vaccines. What do you need to know about the Delta variant? Are there changes that you need to make to your routine or things that you should be increasingly aware of uh, as we kind of move into the second half of the year here? Boy, have I gotten questions about that. (laughs) Well, the, the first thing is we need to remember that outside of our family circle, If we're going to any kind of group activity and that's indoors, even though we're vaccinated, we have to wear a mask. For example, I do some of the family grocery shopping. I do it Saturday morning and I put a mask on when I go to the supermarket. It's indoors. There are a lot of other people there. I'm vaccinated, but I'm being careful. Uh, Similarly, the difficulties come in when you try to apply this to some of the details of our life. And I guess the most questions I've gotten is, oh, can those vaccinated grandparents now visit with unvaccinated younger grandchildren? Mm -hmm. That gets to be harder. In brief, what I've said is, first, look at yourself. You're a vaccinated grandparent, but how frail are you? The more underlying illnesses you have, the more careful you have to be. And then look at that family that's coming for a visit. Your child and the in-law and the children, have they been out and about kind of carefree or have they been careful? Uh, And if they've been careful, well, have them over. And then you have to adjust. How much time are we spending together? And it's always good to have a conversation before you arrive. What are the ground rules? For example, children, young children can be brought into this and 
made proud of the fact that they're protecting grandma and grandpa. We're only going to go in and hug them once around the waist, no kissing, and then we'll hug them again around the waist when we leave, but we'll spend some time together. You can make adjustments like that as you try to apply these general recommendations down to your own specific family or professional circumstances. Sure, that makes sense. What about, you know, we see a lot of return to, quote unquote, the normal things we were doing before the pandemic. You know, I'm a baseball fan. I see lots of folks at these outdoor stadiums without their masks on. If you were going to, or would you consider still going to a a baseball game right now, considering this Delta variant, would you wear your mask since it's outdoors? Well, I have some gray hair and we have a family member who's very close to us who has an underlying condition that's pretty serious. So we're being very careful. So the short answer is yes, if were I to go to a ball game out of doors, I would still wear my mask. People around cheering and everything. And I would try to stay as far away from other people as possible. That's not very social, but it's everything to do with safety. So what about folks who are unvaccinated or if you have people in your life who are still unvaccinated? You know, we mentioned young children and people who have compromised immune systems. What are the things that these folks should know about the Delta variant? So you mentioned unvaccinated, and I'm now going to be facetious. Unvaccinated? Are there unvaccinated people out there? Hello? (laughs) (laughs) So that was facetious. Yes. (laughs) We would try to do as much as possible to get our friends and neighbors vaccinated and answer all of their questions and provide, you know, the psychologists have reinforced this notion and have taught me again and again that information is essential, but information alone rarely changes people's behavior. You have to change their attitude and it's how they feel about something. Are they comfortable? Are they reassured about it? Is it the socially appropriate thing to do in their group? And You have to try to get on their wavelength, speaking their language to try to reassure them that this is important. So obviously we would try to persuade people who are unvaccinated to join the rest of us who are vaccinated. Apropos of immunocompromised persons, the way we best protect them besides giving them the vaccine and hope that it provides them some protection, the best way is to create a so-called cocoon of protection around them so that everyone with whom they have contact is vaccinated. That makes it much harder for the virus to penetrate those blockers, as it were, to get through to the immunocompromised person. And of course, those people who are immunocompromised I would advise them to be very cautious in their own personal behaviors. This continues to be a time to rent a movie rather than going to the movies. That makes sense. I want to talk a little bit about some of the more sciencey aspects here. Um, how does a new variant of a virus evolve? What is the process, you know, especially when you have kind of a mix of a vaccinated population and an unvaccinated population? 
these RNA viruses have a tendency to mutate. COVID doesn't mutate as often as flu, thank goodness, or HIV for that matter, but it does mutate. Most of the mutations are harmless. And of course, they occur when the virus replicates. Every time it infects a new person, it replicates, it multiplies millions, if not billions of times. And so that provides an opportunity for genetic change. So as this virus is rushing through the unvaccinated population and multiplying so extensively in that population, that population puts everyone literally on the planet at risk that a mutation might occur in that population that has new characteristics. The most feared one, of course, is a set of mutations that would make the new strain resistant to the current vaccines that we have available. If that happened and a resistant strain had the capacity to spread, ooh, then we'd have to create a new vaccine and start all over again. And so, yes, people who are unvaccinated provide the opportunity for new strains to develop and spread. So in addition to Delta, there are other variants that mostly seem to be affecting other countries right now. Should we expect them to show up in the U.S. too at some point? Well, some of those strains have. A South African strain, one from Brazil. Obviously, Delta came from India. The original Alpha strain jumped the ocean and came from the United Kingdom. So the strains will develop where they are. And then transport today of human beings is so extensive that it will take no time at all for these strains to scatter about. But they have to have an evolutionary advantage. And the Brazilian strain, the South African strain, uh, yes, they occur in the United States, but they don't account for hardly any infections. They don't have an evolutionary advantage the way Delta does, which since we're recording this during the Olympics, I'll use an Olympic image. Uh, Delta just can outrun all the competitors. Mm. And so it has that evolutionary advantage. It's become the dominant strain. I see. And there could be potentially not to get too doom and gloom or far ahead of ourselves, but there could be others that emerge that are yet undetected, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Did you hear me sigh? Yes. <laughs> I that, did. I, I think we're, I, we, we all side with you. <laughs> of course, that possibility is out there. We learned early on that our British friends were doing much more whole genome sequencing of viruses looking for these variants. We got aboard later when we discovered, you know, what they're doing in the laboratory is important. We've now extended this capacity throughout many of our medical centers and also to our state health departments. And so we're sequencing as a surveillance mechanism uh, more and more of the viruses that are turning up in an attempt to 
early identify rogue strains that haven't been around before. That will continue and continues to varying degrees around the world also. I see. Is there a goalpost, I suppose, for containing the Delta variant? When will we know that we've done enough to suppress it? So we have to be careful with language here. Uh, You can hear this in the media. When will the pandemic end? Mm -hmm. That can be misinterpreted. The pandemic could end, but that doesn't mean the virus is going to disappear. It won't. The virus is now part of our microbiological environment, and we're going to have to keep contending with this virus ad infinitum the way we contend with influenza. The question is, how well, how completely can we contend with it? And clearly, vaccination is the best way to do it, not just here, but around the world, because we don't want those variants to crop up in some foreign place and then be transported here. So we have not only a humanitarian interest in providing vaccines uh, around the world, but we have a self-interest. So we will be contending all the time. Now, locally, we could, we think, diminish substantially the transmission of this virus if we got most of the population vaccinated. Now, unfortunately, our back of the envelope calculations about the proportion of the population that has to be vaccinated has increased. And that's because Delta is so much more contagious. Mm. The more contagious the virus, the higher the proportion of the population you have to protect so that the virus's transmission will be reduced. So the back of the envelope calculations, the models, to be fancy, now indicate well over 80%. That's a very high goal. We've not been able to do that with any other vaccine aimed at adults. And frankly, we all hit a hard wall of vaccine reluctance, hesitancy, skepticism, and downright stubbornness much earlier than we anticipated in our vaccination campaign. We're now constantly trying to chip away, if you will, at that remaining group of unvaccinated folks so we can get closer to 70%, 75%, 80%. But it will take an an enormous amount of work. And frankly, it will take mandates of a variety of kinds. Yeah, 80% is a <clears throat> is a very high goal, a, a very high marker. That sounds like a big challenge to get up to that number. I want to ask you, since we're talking about vaccines, I want to ask you quickly about booster shots for people who have been vaccinated. It seems like <laughs> To me, at least, you can tell me if I'm wrong, seems like a certainty that everyone is going to need them at some point. Or would it only be certain people who would need them? And when do you think we might start to hear a little more about the need to get a booster shot? Yeah, Carrie, I'm with you on point number one. It's likely that we'll all need a booster at some time in the future, but that time has not yet been determined. But boy, is this a frequently asked question. Mm -hmm. The CDC's 
Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, the ACIP, has had this under discussion. And they've laid out kind of a roadmap to booster and have said there are two roads that would take us to a much more immediate need for boosting. The first is if people currently vaccinated had their protection start to wane such that more and more of them were getting infected and finding their way into the hospital. If that started to happen, if the real essential protection started to wane, well, clearly we would need a booster. The other road to boosting is what we talked about a moment ago, namely rogue variants. Could there be a variant that evades in part or whole the protection that the vaccines currently give us. If that happened, we'd have to create a new vaccine to match this rogue and boost everybody. Now, another thought. Our friends who are immunocompromised, they don't respond optimally. And there's been a lot of discussion in saying, you know, why don't we boost them or create, for example, a three-dose series in order to kind of give their immune systems a little more punch to get more antibody. There have been some studies that at least in some small subsets of immunocompromised people, an additional dose will raise antibody levels. Ooh, that's good. We think that will translate into protection. The other good thing happens on the other side of the coin, the safety side it really doesn't look as though that third dose gives you much more local and immediate side effects. Mm. Arms are not that much more sore. More people don't really feel punk for a day or two afterwards, get fever, aches and pains, headaches and the like. It's about the same as maybe a little bit more than just after two doses. So that part is pretty good. And so the ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, currently has under discussion, should people who are immune compromised get a booster? Not yet decided. And just to be complete, there is an administrative hooker here. <laughs> it turns out <laughs> this, is, this is a problem of our own making. It's not biological. Mm. But when the application from the companies went in to the Food and Drug Administration for an emergency use authorization, they got their EUAs. But there was nothing in the application about a booster. Oh, interesting. Oh, oh, oh. Hmm. So the thought is we need to either amend the EUA or have the FDA finally license the vaccine. If the hmm. vaccine were finally licensed, Doctors could give off-label use of the vaccine and give boosters. Well, we're not there for either of those. Hmm. Now, I'm going to tell you something else, but don't tell everybody else. <laughs> Namely, there are some doctors and patients who are doing this already. Yes. Somehow they've managed to game the system. And they have found locations where vaccine is being provided where you can actually get a third dose. And uh, I don't know where that is, but some people do. 
And they I've been hearing found... that as well. I've been hearing that as stories <laughs> here and there about, you know, I was able to go to this pharmacy and talk them into giving me a third shot. I don't know how you must be a pretty good talker. Well, apparently some places are less assiduous in looking up your vaccination record, let's mm. say, or mm. being more permissive. And the argument goes, look, the limited data show it might provide some benefit. The adverse events, the safety side seems pretty good. And by the way, we've got a lot of vaccine that's going unused. It's not as though we're taking doses from other people mm -hmm. because the vaccine is sitting in refrigerators. So uh, why not? You know, it's not a bad argument. And I, for one, certainly would hope that the Food and Drug Administration moves a little bit more quickly and licenses the vaccine. That would be an answer to a number of problems. You mentioned vaccine mandates a moment ago, and we've heard um, a lot about, uh, you know, a lot of private companies, Facebook, Google, Disney, Walmart, starting to mandate that their employees get vaccinated. Also, the federal government has been looking at asking federal employees and I think members of the military as well to consider mm -hmm. that. So um, talk to me a little bit about vaccine mandates. What sure. kind of a difference would that make uh, in terms of, the, you know, the surge in cases that we're seeing? Well, it would be, as one of the political candidates used to say, huge. It would be very <laughs> important because it, it would remove an obvious barrier, an obvious counterpoint immediately to providing vaccines to uh, many, many people. Uh, I would add healthcare environments, academic centers such as mine and other hospitals are adding uh, COVID to their required vaccination list, just as we did with uh, influenza. And there are many colleges, my own included, Vanderbilt, that is requiring all incoming students this fall to be vaccinated. And so uh, this concept is spreading out. And although I'm sure it's not being embraced by everyone uh, by any means, uh, nonetheless, I think if the Food and Drug Administration licensed the vaccine, this would open the door to doing that. And a lot more governmental units would do that. I think one of the things that is unlikely to happen is that COVID-19 vaccine be added to the list of vaccines that are required for school attendance now 12 and up, age 12 and up, and later on when it becomes more available, we anticipate, for younger children. I think the vaccine is still too new. It's still too controversial. Uh, it takes a fairly elaborate process in each state to do that. And I'm going to be very candid here. I think it would bring the anti-vaccination crowd out in arms and would actually make the entire school vaccination laws very vulnerable to repeal. Hmm. Uh, and so I don't think that will happen. But there will be states that say everyone who works in state government has to be vaccinated, just as is now happening in the federal government, with arrangements for people who uh, have very sincere and intense religious objections, and obviously people who have medical contraindications. Those can be managed, but I think mandates are going to be required to get us above that 80% level.
when we say the word mandate sounds very um, severe, but you know, no one is is holding you down and putting a syringe in your arm. Uh, you describe what what the word or what the phrase vaccine mandate means, or is it different depending on the group you're talking about? Well, uh, when we talked about it with influenza in medical centers, we, and one of my colleagues says, well, mandates come in a variety of flavors. There are a few medical centers who have discharged uh, workers, healthcare workers, who just refuse to be vaccinated against flu. Most of the rest of the medical centers, my own included, do an awful lot of education. And if you wish to have an exemption for any reason, medical or otherwise, we have a committee that reviews those and then counsels with people regarding them. We've gotten up to literally 98% of our healthcare team here, uh, all the way from custodian to the vice chancellor, vaccinated against flu each year. And we think we can do something similar uh, with COVID with the appropriate attention. The folks who aren't vaccinated, they have to wear masks, of course, when they are around others. Uh, we can make those accommodations and get very, very high levels of vaccination. And I think increasingly people have found ways to extend vaccination mandates, obligations, requirements, whatever word you choose, to very large populations and have done it in a way that's widely accepted and not really deeply resented. It is, after all, in the healthcare environment, a, a patient safety issue. We don't want to give our infection to our patients. And of course, that concept extends throughout the population. This is a communicable disease. It's contagious. I think the most misunderstood concept is that it's up to me to make my own decision. That's only half right because your decision influences what happens to others. And I actually think not being vaccinated is akin to driving on a red light. You've made your own decision. You're willing to take on some risk for yourself. You put all those other people around you at risk at the same time. Certainly, that makes a lot of sense. Um... Dr. William Schaffner, thank you so much for your time today, and thank you for all of your insights about this somewhat confusing topic. Uh, we really appreciate the, the clarity. Carrie, thank you. We're all in this together. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hope everyone has a great week, and we'll talk to you next time.